Good morning. So just to make sure that our motivation for participating in this session, listening to these teachings and thinking about them and so on, is an altruistic one for the benefit of all beings, for the sake of reaching enlightenment to help all living beings. Let's take a few more minutes to generate that state of mind. So yesterday's events in our nation's capital were clear examples of what can happen when a mind gets under the control of afflictive emotions, attachment, anger, and so on. And these afflictive emotions are in turn based on ignorance, not seeing how things really exist, not seeing things correctly, but believing there's a real I, a real me, self, somewhere inside of our body and mind complex, which in fact doesn't exist. It's a fantasy, a hallucination, a creation of ignorance, but not Realizing that, we cling to it, believe in it, and then on that basis develop all kinds of other attitudes, you know, like me and my family and my country and my party and my beliefs and get very attached to those and very hostile towards those on the other side who don't agree with us, who have different views or, you know, different races, different political affiliations, and so on. So the mind can get totally entangled in these um, kinds of thoughts and feelings, emotions. And then in this confused state of mind, the actions that we do are often unwise, unskillful, even harmful, even destructive. Four people died yesterday as a result of this mob um, takeover of the capital. And so ideally our response to this is compassion rather than anger. Compassion for all those affected by the, these events and those caught up in them and harmed by them and, and so on. Compassion for those whose minds are so out of control, so confused. And compassion motivates us to want to help. So this is a very positive state of mind. And um, we're very fortunate that we have the chance to learn the Buddha's teachings and are interested in learning them and studying them, practicing them and so on. So Buddha's teachings show how the mind works and how suffering and problems come from these afflicted states of mind like ignorance, greed, hatred, and so on, and how we can undo this mess in our minds that keeps us in samsara, experiencing suffering, confusion, problems over and over and over again. And so if we do want to help others be free of all these problems, we need to do it ourselves. We need to work on our own minds and clear up the mess in our own minds, and then we're 
You know, our minds will become more clear and more peaceful and more positive, and our other good qualities will grow, and our ability to help others will increase as well. And, of course, we're also creating the cause to bring our minds to the state of full enlightenment or Buddhahood, which is the best possible state of mind from which to help others. So see if you can make that your motivation for being here and participating in this session. Helping others as much as you can now, but also creating the cause to become a Buddha, fully enlightened, fully awakened, sometime in the future, as quickly as possible, hopefully, but have that as a long-term goal to be able to benefit all beings in the best possible way. Okay, so we've been going through the Bodhisattva vow, which is taken with that motivation of wanting to reach full enlightenment, Buddhahood, to help all living beings. And the Bodhisattva vow consists of 18 root downfalls and then 46 auxiliary, auxiliary or secondary uh, precepts. So we've been going through the secondary ones. And last time we got up to number 22 out of 46, or almost halfway through. And um, so the secondary um, misdeeds are grouped according to which of the six perfections they are related to. Now, so certain misdeeds hinder our practice of the six perfections. There's also one group about uh, benefiting others. So uh, with regard to the fourth perfection of joyous effort, there were three of the secondary misdeeds related to that. In other words, three kinds of actions that we might do that would interfere with joyous effort that we should try to avoid. So joyous effort, in brief, is uh, feeling joyful about doing what is virtuous, what is beneficial, helpful, especially in terms of our spiritual practice towards enlightenment. So being happy to do what is virtuous, what is good, what is beneficial. And it's uh, the main obstacle to joyous effort is laziness. 
And there's different kinds of laziness. So, um, so if we fall under the control of laziness, then that interferes with our practice of joyous effort. And so these three mis- these three secondary misdeeds that interfere with joyous effort are numbers 21, 22, and 23. Mm-hmm. So last time we covered the first two, and now we're going to look at the third one, number 23. Okay, so this one says, with attachment, spending time idly talking and joking. Uh-oh. <laughs> this is a hard one. <laughs> but not in retreat. (laughs) We have to keep silence, so can't do that one. Um, So um, Alex Berzin's explanation says, um, so this means uh, wasting time in a meaningless fashion. It refers to telling, listening to, reading, watching on television or in the movies or surfing the internet for stories about sex, violence, celebrities, political intrigues, and so on. And Dr. Rinpoche's explanation refers to it as indulging excessively in the pleasure of senseless conversations. And so he mainly talks about conversations and not doesn't mention watching TV and news and so on. Um, but you know, at the Buddha's time, when or at the time when these vows, these precepts were came, were first um, um, developed, they didn't have TV <laughs> or social media or any of those kind of things. So conversations were the way that people would pass news to each other and discuss you know, what's going on in politics. So, so I think it is, it does make sense to extend it beyond just talking with people to these other, um, these other kind of media. Because also when we do watch TV and listen to news and, and social media and so on, it can lead to conversations. It usually does lead to conversations. <laughs> we want to talk with others about these things that we learn. And also just within our own minds. I don't, I don't know about you, but, you know, I have a lot of conversations going on in my mind <laughs> about senseless things <laughs> that I've read about and heard about and old movies that I've watched <laughs> and so on. <laughs> Yeah, so I think it makes sense to, you know, include those other kinds of activities. And then Dr. Rinpoche, he uses this word excessive, doing this excessively. <laughs> he explains excessive as an entire morning or afternoon or evening. So that's, you know, excessive. So it kind of implies that doing it a little bit, maybe not too harmful. <laughs> <laughs> and there are exceptions given as well. Um, exceptions. One one exception is that if we engage in these kind of conversations to help others who may be lonely or depressed, right? So that makes sense. You know, somebody's lonely, depressed, especially you know family members or friends who aren't Dharma practitioners, and you know they're not going to be interested in talking about emptiness or, you know, the four foundations of mindfulness. 
things like that. So, no, we do need to sometimes have these kind of conversations with people just to keep up our relationships and help, you know, people who are lonely and depressed. But when we are in those kind of situations, we should try to maintain our mindfulness and our, you know, keep our minds positive, try not to let them get caught up in attachment and anger and so forth. And a second exception would be if we engage in such conversations or media to stay in touch with what's happening in the world. So that is important. If we want to, you know, practice bodhicitta, practice the bodhisattva path, we need to know what's going on with people what kind of problems, what kind of suffering they're experiencing so that we can um, engage with them in, re in relation to that. So that's engaging in these conversations or media with a positive intention, not out of attachment, you know, because the, the vow does say with attachment, doing these things with attachment. So if you're doing it with another motivation, an altruistic motivation to help others, to... So and then it's, but it's so easy for attachment to come up. So <laughs> you have to watch out for that. Also, we can just waste a lot of time. I mean, this isn't this kind of activity isn't necessarily helpful for our spiritual development. And so, if we spend a lot of time doing these things, then we have less time to meditate and study and and so on. Okay, so the, that's it with joyous effort. And um, the next of the perfections or far-reaching attitudes is concentration. Sometimes it's called meditative stabilization. And so there are three misdeeds um, that are obstacle, you know, doing these actions are obstacles to developing our concentration or meditative stabilization. So number 24 says, not seeking the means to develop concentration, such as proper instructions and the right conditions necessary to do so. Not practicing the instructions once you have received them. But the explanations of Alex Burson and Dr. Ramesh, mainly they're talking about uh, learning situations, you know, like you avoid or don't go to learning situations where you could learn about concentration. They don't mention the need to actually practice it, but I suppose that's just goes without saying. You know, it's not enough just to know all the information and not try to put it into practice. So we should make the effort to practice these teachings. And um, so there could be different motivations for why we might do this. So Alex says, um, uh, out of pride or spite or laziness or indifference, uh, if we do not attend teachings on how to settle our minds in absorbed concentration when a master is giving them, how can we ever cultivate or enhance our stability of mind? So we do need to make an effort to learn about how to concentrate our mind. Um, but there are some exceptions to this. For example, um, if we're sick, we're too ill to go to these teachings, or recovering from an operation or um, injured or whatever, 
Um, or if we suspect that the instructions are incorrect, <laughs> teacher doesn't really know what they're talking about. Or if we've already achieved perfect concentration. <laughs> so yeah, you don't need to go. And then Dr. Rimache adds another one to these. Um, if we are presently applying the instructions that we have received, so you might be in a retreat situation where you are practicing and you're kind of confident that you know what you're doing and don't need further instructions. And in his explanation, yeah, he mainly talks about learning situations, not attending teachings on concentration. And again, it could be out of animosity. Maybe you have a version for that particular teacher. Oh, I'm not going to go and listen to that person. Or maybe pride. I know it all. I know enough. Then these are deluded attitudes, deluded motivations for not going to teachings. But other motivations could be just laziness. I can't be bothered. You know, I'd rather lie in bed, um, watch TV. <laughs> then this would be um, without, without delusion, but still a misdeed. I suppose other, other considerations might be if the teachings are being given, but they're too far away to travel, you know, in a reasonable amount of time, or it's, you know, locked down, <laughs> we can't leave, although now we can get teachings online. Um, but maybe also just being super, super busy. I mean, there's just so many teachings now online. It's almost impossible to keep up with all of them. But I think mainly try to do it not with a deluded attitude or a lack of respect or a lack of interest in this topic, but uh, I have a, a valid reason, a valid motivation. And number 25 is not abandoning the five hindrances to meditative stabilization or concentration. So the five hindrances are sensual desire. That means um, attachment to any of the objects of the five senses, attractive visual forms, sounds, smells, tastes, and tactile sensations. So attachment to those can be a hindrance to concentration. The second one is malice, or sometimes called ill will. And that's having harmful thoughts, even if we don't act them out, but just having those thoughts in the mind, wanting to hurt somebody, do something harmful. Um, the third is a pair, dullness and drowsiness. So dullness is uh, mental and physical heaviness that is based on ignorance. So just, especially after lunch, you know, after eating a big meal, you just feel <laughs> very hard to have this bright, clear, alert state of mind. Um, and drowsiness or sleepiness um, that's, you know, you probably had that. <laughs> I certainly have. <laughs> I remember once I was, I was actually leading a meditation and I was sitting there, you know, concentrating and I think I fell forward on top of the microphone. <laughs> Even though they had their eyes closed, they could tell what was going on. 
Uh, yeah, so, okay, then uh, the next one, number four, is also a pair, restlessness and regret. Restlessness is sometimes called excitement, and that's based on attachment. That's when our mind just gets really excited thinking about, you know, maybe things we've done in the past, memories from the past, movies, music, books, poetry, exciting adventures we've had or vacations we've had, whatever, you know, zillions of possible things we get excited about. So our mind is carried away thinking those kind of thoughts. Um, regret is when we remember mistakes that we've made or faults that we have, dumb things that we've done, <laughs> and then feel bad about that. And in, in a way, it's good. It's good to have that kind of regret. But it can become uh, obsessive. I mean, when we do have regret, ideally we should then uh, purify, you know, do, do purification practice to clear that up and not just keep thinking about it. But sometimes the mind just can't let go of that and just keeps thinking again and again and again about these dumb things that we've done or harmful things that we've done. So that, that, that becomes a, a hindrance to concentration. The fifth one is doubt. So doubt, sometimes it's helpful to have doubt, like when we listen to teachings or read books and so on, you know, we're supposed to not just blindly believe, we're supposed to investigate, think for ourselves. Um, but that can become a hindrance in meditation if our mind is <laughs> getting caught in that mode of thinking, like, am I, you know, should I be doing this practice or some other practice? Um, you know, does the Buddha really have all those qualities that they say he has and so on? So our mind can get caught up in those kinds of thoughts and then, you know, it's hard to concentrate, <laughs> stay with your object of concentration. And it can also lead to a kind of um, immobilization, you know, like you just get paralyzed because you, you don't know. Having doubt can hinder your ability to keep going in your practice and move forward. You just get stuck where you are. Also, we can have doubt about our own abilities. You know, am I really able to do this? Am I really able to learn meditation and practice meditation? Maybe I should do something else instead. Learn yoga and become a yoga teacher. I don't know. You know, it's like the mind just <laughs> can go anywhere <laughs> with doubt. So we should try to resolve our doubts so that that doesn't happen, so that we can put, you know, either, you know, resolve them or put them aside. Because there's some things we just cannot know for sure at this point in time. Certain things we, we need to rely on our teachers and not on the Buddha. We can't completely be sure 100% if this is true or not. So try to resolve them in, in some way so that you can continue putting your energy into your practice. Alex says that if these any of these five arise in our mind and we give in to them and do not try to eliminate them, we damage our development of mental stability. If we try to remove them but are not successful, we're not at fault. 
So we should at least try to apply the antidotes and deal with them, but we might not be successful. Sometimes they're just too strong. We just like carried away with a tsunami wave of <laughs> desire or excitement or whatever. So at least we have to have the, the wish and the attempt to deal with them. And in um, volume four, which is called no, following in the Buddha's following in the Buddha's footsteps. Yeah, that has a very extensive explanation on um, in chapter seven. Chapter seven, extensive explanation of these five um, hindrances and how to deal with them. But just briefly from Dakpa Rameshe's commentary, he he gives some antidotes to these five. So this is useful for you now. You're in retreat, so. <laughs> You might notice these coming up once in a while, <laughs> once or twice during the retreat. <laughs> okay, so for sense desire, that's, you know, in our attraction to, you know, you might think about what's for lunch or smell something and then start fantasizing. Oh boy, that's going to be really yummy. Um, or sounds, some places you might hear music while you're trying to meditate and it might be music that you like so then you could get really <laughs> attracted to that. Or it might be music that you don't like and that would be the next one, malice. <laughs> anyway, so how to deal with sense desire? Um, his recommendation is to contemplate the disadvantages of sense objects. For example, sensory objects, they're impermanent, they don't last. They're very fleeting, very transitory. Also, the pleasure they give doesn't last. A few seconds, a few minutes. And it doesn't really satisfy. You know, your mind, get, mind gets kind of a, this fleeting sense of pleasure, but, you know, then it's gone and you're still back where you were before with the same problem, same dissatisfaction, and also attachment. If we, if we do let ourselves get attached to these objects, that can lead down a very disastrous road, <laughs> or at least, you know, lead to different kinds of problems and interfere with our ability to concentrate. So those are some things we could try to do. Another thing that's helpful is just to think about the disadvantages of that object. Like, you know, when we have attachment to something, our mind glosses over any disadvantages, any faults, any mistakes, and exaggerates its attractiveness, making it into something much more wonderful than it really is. So bring yourself down to reality. Remind yourself of things about the object that aren't so great, you know, like attachment to food. You can get fat. <laughs> you can get other kinds of diseases. Um, makes you sleepy after you eat too much. Yeah, so don't just go with what your mind is saying about the wonderful things about the object, but remind yourself of the not-so-wonderful things. So that's a helpful thing to um, 
cool down that attachment, that desire. And the second one, malice or ill will, um, which is usually described as the wish to harm. I don't know about you, but sometimes, you know, I can have those kind of thoughts going up in my mind. Remembering somebody who did something that I didn't like, something that was harmful, or somebody's making noise while I'm trying to meditate, so I can get into some un unhealthy thoughts with regard to that. And Achan Brahm, you may have heard of him, he's a Theravada teacher, um, done a lot of teachings and written books about developing concentration. He calls this one the fault-finding mind, which I found very, very helpful. Because, you know, the number of times I actually have the wish to harm are pretty minimal. But the fault-finding mind? <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's a lot. Because <laughs> you can find fault with just about anything. Not just other people, noises, but your own body, the meditation cushion you're sitting on, the environment you're in. Oh, it's too warm in here. It's too cold in here. Why don't they turn the heat up? You know, just about anything can be you know, something that triggers this fault-finding mind. And it's clear that that is a hindrance. That is an obstacle. Because your mind, it certainly disturbs your ability to concentrate, and your mind can get all carried away in how to deal with this fault, how to get rid of this fault, how to change this fault. <laughs> so the traditional antidote for this state of mind is love, loving-kindness. So... Because it is, yeah, it's based on anger usually. Anger, hatred, aversion, that, that whole state of mind. I don't like that. Rejection of that. So loving kindness is the antidote to that. Also we could say patience or fortitude. Especially if it's something inanimate. You know, if it's an inanimate object then maybe love isn't quite appropriate. <laughs> so uh, the teachings on patience or fortitude give us a lot of tools on how to deal with unpleasant experiences, uh, you know, how we can use those in our practice, use those in our path. Um, so you could use one of those. Lojong, mind training. Lots of methods. And then the third uh, uh, hindrance, the pair, dullness and drowsiness. Um, so antidotes to this would be, there's a number of them. One is to contemplate the precious human rebirth. Just remind ourselves of how fortunate we are to have the life that we have, the conditions that we have, how rare it is to have all of these compared with most other people in the world and most other beings in the universe. You know, just because this problems of dullness and drowsiness are kind of, mind just kind of sinks down and becomes lethargic and there's a lack of energy, a lack of enthusiasm, a lack of, you know, the wish to work on your practice. So they say the antidote is to uplift the mind, bring the mind up, energize the mind with something positive, something uplifting, like the precious human life, 
or thinking of the qualities of the Buddha, the three jewels. Think about something uplifting. Another one they mention is to visualize light. So just imagine somebody turns on a bright light inside your head, inside your body. You know, illumination, because that wakes us up. And also I find sitting up straight. Sometimes, you know, physically you can kind of slouch like this. (laughs) So sitting up straight can help. And your eyes, um, if your eyes have been closed, then open them. Open them partially. I've been in situations where I have to open them really wide. (laughs) Even partially, they still kind of (laughs) fall down. So really wide. And then just stare at some point. You know, don't be looking around, but look at one, one point in front of you. And it usually passes if you just resist it. That's my experience. Just don't let yourself think, oh, I have to go and take a nap. (laughs) You know, follow that mind. But just resist it. After a while, it just passes. It goes away by itself. But they do say, you know, if if you try all these things and they still doesn't work, you can get up and walk around. But not not when you're in a group. (laughs) That wouldn't be okay. But when you're by yourself, you can just take a break, stretch, throw some cold water in your face, look at it you know, space, um, big view, and um, just take a short break and then go back and sit down and you might find your energy has changed. Um, The fourth one, restlessness and regret. So restlessness or excitement, um, well, yeah, for both of these, uh, Dr. Ramesh's advice is to contemplate death and impermanence. Um, So excitement you know, mind gets carried away with all these fantasies or thoughts of enjoying this and that and so on. So remembering impermanence and death. Death could happen any minute, even when we're sitting on our meditation cushion. You probably heard this story. I, I, I wasn't there, but I heard there was one nun, I think. She was a nun from Spain, and she was in Bulgaria meditating, sitting near the Bodhi tree where the Buddha attained enlightenment, meditating. And she passed away. She had a heart attack. So even sitting in meditation, you might think that's kind of a safe situation. Nothing could happen here, but it can. Things could still happen when we're meditating, even in such a seemingly peaceful, safe situation. So even from one breath to the next, you know, in between one breath and the next breath, something could happen. Or even in the middle of one breath, you breathe in, you might not have time to breathe out again. So we just never know. So that can help us to get back to our practice and stop those fantasies. And impermanence that, you know, nothing lasts. So these things we're thinking about, fantasizing about, they're just in our mind. They're just thoughts coming, going in our mind like clouds in the sky. And we do have a choice over what we do with them. We don't have to follow them. We don't have to pay attention to them. So those are some methods to deal with that. And then for doubt, Dr. Mache's advice, I, I'm puzzled about this one, but he says... Um, contemplate 
how we exist, our conventional uh, conventional self, how how our how our self exists conventionally, um, dependently, you know, in relation to our body and mind, just labeled, and not inherently. So there's no inherently existing I, but just labeled I, labeled in relation to our body and mind. Quite sure how that would overcome doubt, but you could try. <laughs> other, yeah, you could also try other antidotes, like just seeing these are just thoughts in my mind, and I'll deal with them later. You know, maybe after your after your uh, session, you can look at those doubts and see how to resolve them. But if you let your mind get caught up in them during your meditation session, they'll interfere with your concentration. So put them aside until later. Go and ask someone else. You know, if it's really a serious doubt you can't resolve on your own, uh, communicate with your teacher, with another monastic, another student. Just try to get it resolved. And Dr. Rishi says also, for all five of these hindrances, we can use uh, integrity and um, consideration for others, those two virtuous mental factors. So integrity would work because if we realize that our mind has come under the influence of one of these obstacles and that this isn't right, you know, I'm a meditator. I'm someone who has taken Buddhist teachings and learned how to develop my mind, how to develop concentration. And right now, at this moment, my mind is not concentrating. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sunk into dullness or, or got carried away with excitement. This isn't right. It's not right for me to be doing this. So in that sense of integrity could help us to get ourselves back to our object of meditation. Or the other one, um, the other mental factor of consideration for others, thinking about our spiritual teachers, our spiritual friends, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, you know, especially them, because they know what's going on. They're always around and they say what's going on in our mind. We can't hide from them. Um, so, you know, would they be happy with what I'm doing right now? Would they be, you know, approving of this? What would they think? What would they say? So that might help us to get ourselves back on our meditation object. So again, there's more information in Chapter 7 of that book, um, Following in the Buddha's Footsteps. So if you are dealing with any of these, then... So in the Lamrim teachings on cultivating calm abiding, which you've probably heard uh, many times, um, it mentions another set of five obstacles, ob obstacles to the cultivation of calm abiding or serenity. Does, do you remember what those are? Um, yes, forgetting the instructions. Hmm? Laziness, yes. <laughs> That's a big one. <laughs> yeah, so laziness. They say laziness um, 
in this context means just not having the energy to meditate. Oh, I don't feel like, you know, you hear the bell ring. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I don't want to go back there again. Just not wanting to, not having the enthusiasm to meditate. But any, of the, any other kind of laziness, you know, attachment to sleep, hanging around doing nothing, attachment to other things that are not very constructive, you know, oh, I really want to finish this comic book or, you know, whatever. Play with a cat. So things that are not very constructive <laughs> in terms of our spiritual practice that interfere with doing it. And, um, yeah, forgetting the instructions, that specifically means forgetting the object. Forgetting the object. I'm supposed to be meditating on the Buddha or Tara or whatever, and instead I'm thinking about some other object. So the mind forgets the object of meditation. And then this pair, um, they're put together in one of excitement and laxity. I don't know how Venerable calls them restlessness. I think she calls it restlessness. And the other one, sinking. Some, co some call it sinking or laxity. What does she call it? Yeah, there's all different terms. But it's a lack of vividness and clarity in the medi in your state of mind. You're, you might be focusing on the object and have good concentration on the object, but it's not very sharp and clear and focused. So sometimes that's called laxity. I can't remember all the other terms. Sinking is one of, that's actually a very big obstacle to coma biting. And then, yeah, somebody mentioned non-applying antidotes when you're supposed to. <laughs> so if you have one of these faults in your mind and you just let it go, you don't deal with it, you don't apply antidotes, that itself is a fault. And then the last of the five is over-application, which is when you're applying antidotes when you don't need to. So that's further along. <laughs> that's when you get to one of the higher levels of development of coma biting. Um, and your, you, your mind isn't caught up in excitement or laxity, but you're applying antidotes to them. So that becomes an obstacle. So you have to know when to apply antidotes and when not to. So anyway, that's another list of these of five obstacles. And I often wondered, why are they two different lists? Um, and it seems that they come from different sources. The five that we just went through, the, the five that are mentioned in the Bodhisattva vows, they're, they're actually called five hindrances to concentration. Five hindrances to concentration. And they are found in all traditions. They are found in um, the Pali tradition, in the Chinese tradition, in the Tibetan tradition. So they probably have their source in the Buddha's words and the sutras. Whereas the second list of five, forgetfulness, laziness, and so on, the source of those is a text by Maitreya called Differentiating the Middle and the Extremes, Madhyanta Vibhanga, or Vibhaga, I don't know how to say it, <laughs> something like that. And... Um, 
so that seems to be more specific in the Mahayana tradition, this tradition of Maitreya and Asanga. So, yeah, so the two lists come from different sources. And also, I noticed, you know, one list is called hindrances to concentration, and the other list are called uh, faults to the development of calm abiding or serenity. So maybe that's a more specific, because serenity is a kind of concentration. It's a, it's a, like a sub, uh, I don't know, category? <laughs> anyway, it's, it's within concentration, but concentration is wider than um, calm abiding. So that's as much as I know. But anyway, all of them are, all ten of them, both lists of five are things we need to look out for. They hinder our mind when we're trying to concentrate, so we need to look out for them, know how to deal with them when they arise, and then really make an effort to overcome them. Although it's not easy, but at least we have to try. So if we don't do that, <laughs> if we don't uh, make an effort to overcome these five hindrances, then that becomes a misdeed. And then number 26, this is also related to um, concentration. Seeing the good qualities of the taste of meditative stabilization and becoming attached to it. So Alex says, normally we tie up a great deal of our energies in nervousness, worry, indecision, thoughts of longing or resentment and so on, or weigh them down with dullness and sleepiness. So a lot of our energy goes into those things. As we concentrate and absorb our minds ever deeper, we release ever greater amounts of this energy. We experience this as a feeling of physical and mental bliss. So with greater concentration, comes uh, these feelings of bliss in body and mind. If we become attached to the taste of bliss we gain at any stage of developing mental stability, and we regard enjoying the pleasure we gain from that bliss as the main goal of our practice, we seriously hinder our development of far-reaching stability of mind or perfection of concentration. So, it's fine to experience bliss if it happens. You don't need to stop it. But the problem is if we get attached to it, having attachment to it and wanting more of it and maybe even seeing that as a goal in itself, just experiencing that bliss. So if we do get attached to the bliss, then that itself is an obstacle to concentration. It causes concentration to degenerate, degenerate. And it can also be an obstacle to further development of our mind along the path. For example, wisdom. So if we get too attached to the bliss of concentration and spend a lot of time just hanging out there, <laughs> we might not have as much time and energy to put into cultivating wisdom, which we really need to free ourselves from afflictions and reach enlightenment. So then, for the sixth perfection 
or far-reaching attitude uh, wisdom, there are eight uh, misdeeds that can interfere with that development. So number 27 is abandoning the scriptures or paths of the fundamental vehicle as unnecessary for one following the Mahayana. So fundamental vehicle mainly refers to the hearer uh, teachings and practices. Um, and an example of that would be like our Pratimoksha vows, the Pratimoksha vows that we take both as monastics and lay people. So those vows and how to keep those vows and all the things related to those vows. This is part of the fundamental vehicle teachings. So if we think or say that uh, these teachings are not necessary for someone following the bodhisattva path. You know, we're, fo we're following the bodhisattva path. We don't need to learn that. We don't need to study that. That's not important. This would be a misdeed. So back when we were going through the root downfalls, there were a number of those that were related to the fundamental vehicle and kind of similar to this. For example, number six root downfall involves um, claiming that the teachings of that vehicle are not Buddha's words. So if we say, oh, the fundamental vehicle wasn't taught by the Buddha, the Shravaka teachings, the hearer, the hearer or uh, Shravaka teachings were, were not taught by the Buddha. So that's one of a root downfall. And then number 14, is saying that um, if you practice the fundamental vehicle teachings, you won't be able to overcome your afflictions. They won't help you get rid of your attachment and your aversion and your ignorance and so on. So that's a mistake. It's not true. And then number 13 is if you tell a bodhisattva or somebody following the bodhisattva path, that they don't need to keep the precepts. They don't need to keep Pratimoksha precepts. And you cause them to give up their precepts. If somebody actually does give up their precepts, then you commit the 13th root downfall. So those are in the root downfalls. So here in the secondary downfall, um, the faulty action is simply to think or tell others that bodhisattvas don't need to listen to teachings from the fundamental vehicle, especially the Pratimoksha vows, or to uphold or train themselves. Nobody has to actually give up their vows. So even if nobody follows what you say and gives up their vows, but even just to say that, or even just to think that, that's a misdeed. So we do need to respect uh, our vows, the Pratimoksha vows, the Vinaya, that whole body of teachings. And also the fundamental vehicle teachings are the basis for the Mahayana. The teachings on the Four Noble Truths, the 16 aspects of the Four Noble Truths, uh, Four Foundations of Mindfulness. So all of those teachings and practices are like the foundation for the Mahayana. Bodhisattvas need to study those and practice those too for their development. 
and also to be able to help others. You need to know those teachings so that when you become a Buddha, or even before you become a Buddha, you can help people who are inclined to those vehicles. Those are valid paths the, the Buddha taught. Mahayana isn't for everybody. So for some people, those are the, the right paths for them. So you need to know how to teach those paths to others and guide them to attain nirvana. And does that make sense? And how this relates to wisdom, Alex says, um, in studying and keeping our vows, like the Vinaya precepts, we increase our ability to discriminate between which types of behavior are to be adopted or abandoned. Maybe that's how it helps with our wisdom. So if we reject those teachings, then we're rejecting something that would help in our development of wisdom. But also, yeah, just keeping ethics, living ethically as to the best of our ability is an essential foundation for cultivating other qualities like concentration and wisdom. So I'm really happy with the books that Venerable is putting out, the um, Library of Wisdom and Compassion, because they contain a lot of information from the Pali tradition. Um, and it's wonderful, it's really wonderful to read and, and compare, you know. Even, even in the Pali tradition, you have teachings about bodhisattvas and the perfections and so on. So it's really wonderful and enriching. Some of the information there may not be found in our, in our tradition. So I find it really enriching to study the Pali teachings. But, you know, some people do have this attitude, ah, oh, we don't need that, that's the lower vehicle. <laughs> that's, those are the Hinayanas. <laughs> we don't need to study what they are learning. Um, yeah, that, that kind of attitude can creep in and we, we need to avoid that. And then number 28 is exerting effort principally. Well, the way it's written here, I have a question about this, and I wonder it might not be completely correct. It says, exerting effort principally in another system of practice while neglecting the one you already have, the Mahayana. Um, so it just says, in general, another system of practice. But all the commentaries say it's specifically talking about the fundamental vehicle not just any, any other system of practice. Um, so, so although we should learn and practice the fundamental vehicle, if our mind starts to, you know, favor it over the Mahayana, we start to think, wow, these teachings, these practices are really great, and we kind of moving in that direction, and moving away from Mahayana, this would be incorrect for someone wanting to follow the Bodhisattva path. So volume five says, it would slow down our practice in the Mahayana and could even lead to abandoning Bodhicitta. So we keep going in that direction, we might give up our Bodhicitta altogether. So Dr. Rinpoche says, while we have the perfect opportunity to study Mahayana scriptures, if we give it up, entirely in favor of studying the fundamental fundamental vehicle teachings. This is a misdeed. As a follower of Mahayana, we should give priority to studying and practicing Mahayana teachings. 
So it is important to learn and study and practice the fundamental vehicle teachings, but our main job, our priority should be um, studying and practicing Mahayana. And then number 29, without a good reason, exerting effort to learn or practice the treatises of non-Buddhists, which are not proper objects of your endeavor. So volume five um, says, if we become so interested in non-Buddhist practices that we neglect studying, thinking, and meditating on the Mahayana, this becomes a misdeed. I mean, one thing is just spending so much time, <laughs> spending a lot of time, which perhaps could be better used studying and practicing our teachings. But we can study non-Buddhist philosophies to understand and help the practitioners of those. So it is helpful, especially, you know, in the Bodhisattva path, we want to help all Zeni beings. So it's good to know what kind of views they have, what kind of philosophies they have, what kind of practices they have and we can better help them. But while doing this, you know, if we uh, neglect our study of Mahayana, then it's a problem. Alex has a more extensive commentary. He says, in the commentaries to the Bodhisattva vows, uh, non-Buddhist texts refer to works on logic and grammar. I would have thought philosophy as well. And we can, we can also include books for learning foreign languages or any topic from the modern educational curriculum, such as mathematics, science, psychology, or philosophy. The fault here is putting all our effort, all of our effort into studying these subjects and neglecting our Mahayana studies and practice so that eventually we forget all about them. So if we are intent on following the bodhisattva path, reaching enlightenment to help all sentient beings, that should be our main focus. That should be where our, most of our energy goes into. And uh, there's a danger that if we spend a lot of time and energy studying something else that's not helping us follow the Mahayana path, then this is a problem. Um, he says, if we're very intelligent, able to learn things quickly, have a sound and stable understanding of the Mahayana teachings based on logic and reason, and are able to retain those teachings in our memories for a long time, there's no fault in studying non-Buddhist texts if each day we also maintain our Mahayana studies and practice. So it is possible for some people to be able to do both. And he talks about studying Tibetan language. <laughs> Non-Tibetan students of Buddhism who wish to study the Tibetan language would do well to keep this guideline in mind. If they are able to learn languages quickly and easily, already have a strong foundation in Buddhism, and enough time to study both language and Dharma, they gain much benefit from learning Tibetan. They can use it as a tool for deeper studies. However, if they find the language difficult, have only limited time and energy available, 
and do not yet have a good understanding of Buddhism or a stable daily meditation practice. They damage and hamper their spiritual development by studying Tibetan. So it's important to discriminate our priorities. I think the bottom line is, you know, really try to be clear about what your main focus of study and practice should be. You know, keep that there in your in your life, in your daily life. And if you have time and energy to learn other things, like Tibetan or psychology or whatever, doesn't interfere with your study and practice of the Mahayana, then it's okay. And it can be helpful. Number 30. Beginning to favor and take delight in the treatises of non-Buddhists, although studying them for good reason. So if and when we do study non-Buddhist subjects with a good motivation, wanting to help others, or I guess for a lot of people, maybe also to get a job. (laughs) If you're still at that part of your life and you're needing to think about a job and career and so on, to support yourself and your family, then you may need to you know, involve yourself in these kind of studies. Um, but if we start to be attracted to these views of non-Buddhist philosophies and favor them over Buddhist ones, this would be a misdeed. It would impede our development of wisdom. So I was thinking about, I, I, I'm, I really am interested in psychology, although I've never studied it formally, but I've found there's a lot in Western psychology that's very helpful and often complementary to um, the practice of Buddhism, such as methods to help us overcome self-hatred, <laughs> self-criticalness, low self-esteem, depression, and so on, problems that Westerners are more prone to. And Tibetans often have no clue about these experiences. I remember one one teacher who spent a lot of time in the West, and he said, "I I try to understand depression. I ask people what it what it means, and I try to listen to what they say, but I just don't understand it." Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> so if you don't understand what depression is, then it's very hard to help people who are suffering from depression. But anyway, so psychology can offer a lot of help with, the, with certain kinds of problems um, and then be complementary to our practice of Buddhism and meditation and so on. But on the other hand, if we spend too much time studying psychology, getting involved in that, is that really helpful for our study in our practice of the Mahayana um, and, and with regard to wisdom. As wisdom here mainly means the wisdom of emptiness, selflessness, that there's no inherently existing I, me, myself, even though you know innately we feel like we do have such a self. So that's like a very deep part of our mind, our psyche. And um, and then also with others, we think others have a real self. So there's a real enemy, a real friend, and, and so on. And all the phenomena in the world around us. So that's a really, really important part of uh, Buddhism, especially the Bodhisattva path, is to cultivate the wisdom that sees that 
our normal way of seeing things is, is, is completely wrong, completely opposite to how things exist. So if we're studying other philosophies or science, psychology, and so on, and those are most probably based on the belief in things as inherently existing. Whether even if they don't directly say everything exists inherently, independently from its own side, they may not say that, they probably don't say that, but because they don't refute it, they're probably just going along with it. They're probably just supporting that kind of view. So that's something to be careful of, especially with psychology, because psychology does have a lot to do with our mind, our thoughts, our feelings, our sense of self, our I. Some psychologies might even, you know, uh, support or enhance a feeling of self, which would be de detrimental to the cultivation of the wisdom of emptiness or selflessness. So while it's helpful in certain ways to, to study these things, but we do have to be careful about that, that our sense of self, I, ego, isn't strengthened even more, interfering with our cultivation of wisdom. That was just one thing I thought of as a possible way of understanding these. And Alex says, um, if we have the ability to study non-Buddhist material, such as Tibetan language, with all the stipulations as above, you know, it's not going to interfere with our practice. If we become infatuated with a subject matter, we may give up our spiritual practice and concentrate totally on this less vital topic. Mastering Tibetan or mathematics does not bring us liberation from our disturbing emotions and attitudes, <laughs> nor the problems and suffering they engender. It does not give us the ability to help others as fully as possible. Only perfecting bodhicitta and the far-reaching attitudes, especially you know, wisdom, the discriminating awareness of voidness, can lead us to this goal. Therefore, to guard against infatuation with non-Buddhist topics, which may certainly be helpful to learn, but are not the main things upon which to focus, we study them soberly, keeping a proper perspective, not getting too excited and attached. In this way, we discriminate correctly what is essential and safeguard ourselves from becoming carried away with less vital matters. Okay, the next one, number 31, abandoning any part of the Mahayana by thinking it is uninteresting or unpleasant. <laughs> Like the hell realms, maybe. <laughs> I'm tempted to do that sometimes. <laughs> um, so earlier, there was a similar precept in the root downfalls. Um, number four, fourth root downfall, uh, involved rejecting the whole of the Mahayana, saying that Mahayana's, Mahayana texts are not the Buddha's words. So that's actually a common idea. So even some scholars, even some Buddhists say that. Oh, Mahayana, that wasn't taught by the Buddha. So that would be um, the fourth root downfall. So here we're not rejecting the whole of the Mahayana. So we do accept that in general, Mahayana texts are authentic. 
but we criticize certain aspects of them. Uh, and he gives a few examples. Um, text concerning bodhisattvas unimaginably extensive deeds. For example, bodhisattvas can manifest many forms and go all over the universe and help sentient beings in many different worlds. So some people might think, huh? <laughs> find that hard to believe, hard to accept, and reject that. Another example would be um, the teachings on emptiness, because these sometimes include collections of terse and pithy verses, extremely difficult to fathom. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Won't mention any names. Um, but yeah, some of those verses, what is he saying? <laughs> So, yeah, one might reject those. Oh, this doesn't make any sense to me. I can't deal with this. So we should be careful. And Dr. Mishra says there's four ways that we might reject Mahayana. So one way, and this is from the commentaries, it's not his own invention. One way is if we say that by practicing the Mahayana teachings, we cannot attain higher insight. They won't lead us to attain insight, wisdom. Another way, if we practice these teachings, we cannot increase our merit. We won't be able to accumulate vast amounts of merit. The third would be to say they were not taught by the Buddha, but they were taught by lesser masters, someone other than the Buddha. And the fourth is to say they are useless for sentient beings. So if we do any of those four, then it causes our wisdom to degenerate. So Alex says, um, when faced with teachings or texts that we do not understand, it's good to remain open-minded and think that even though we cannot appreciate or fathom them now, some beings, the Buddhas and highly realized bodhisattvas, do understand the words of these teachings and through realizing their meanings are able to benefit others in infinite ways. So we shouldn't just reject something that we can't understand. I can't understand this. This doesn't make any sense to me. It's rubbish. That's kind of arrogant, isn't it? <laughs> Just because you can't understand something, nobody can understand it. Well, that's probably not true. <laughs> Even not Buddhism bodhisattvas, there could be just ordinary, ordinary people, Dharma friends, Dharma teachers who can understand these, find them very beneficial. So by keeping our mind open and respectful towards these teachings that we can't understand, then we develop firm resolve to try to grasp them in the future. So then we feel, okay, I can understand them now, but in the future, I want to understand them. And I aspire to that. I work towards that. One day, may my mind be in a better state to be able to understand these. Somebody once used the expression of having a too hard basket. 
when you encounter any teaching that you find too hard to understand or too hard to accept, you just kind of mentally file it in the too hard basket or the too hard file. <laughs> Put it aside for later. So that way we avoid rejecting something that we don't understand or don't know how to relate to. And um, another thing that can sometimes happen is almost like banging your head against the wall trying to understand something. Have you been there? Yeah, I can see. <laughs> yeah, you know, like really pushing yourself. Oh, I really want to understand this and getting stressed about it because you can't. So that's another, you know, danger to be, um, to be aware of. So try not to fall into that, but also try not to fall into laziness. Ah, I can't be bothered. So it's good to take things in a kind of middle way. Okay, I'll keep trying to understand that, reading, thinking, hearing, teachings, meditating, accumulating merit. And slowly, slowly, it'll start to make more sense. That's a good approach to take. Okay, so number 32, praising yourself or belittling others because of pride, anger, and so on. So root downfall number one was praising yourself or belittling others. Why? What was the motivation there? Yeah, getting praise or gifts, offerings, donations, like eight worldly dharmas. So here, it's the same action, but different motivation. Here the motivation is pride. Pride in your own accomplishments. Wow, I'm so wonderful. I'm so great. I'm better than everybody else. Maybe anger. That's probably more when we put somebody else down. Belittle another person. I'm kind of surprised, <laughs> just my own thought. This seems like a worse motivation to praise yourself and belittling others. So it's kind of funny that this is a secondary misdeed, whereas praising yourself or belittling others out of attachment is a root downfall. Why do you think that is? <laughs> I think that the root one gets into the, the wrong livelihoods on how to get what we want due to either flattery, bribery, coercion. So it looks like it's got a little bit more different level behind it rather than an afflictive state of mind that we can cut off at the pass, but having a little bit more complicated motivation because attachment's there, but then there's also this idea about strategy and long livelihood stuff. But I would have thought that would be easier to give up than anger. So for Bodhisattva to still have so much pride in themselves and anger towards others that they would do something like this seems like a more gross, it seems like a grosser uh, kind of um, fault or misdeed. But they tend to be, these tend to be more uncomfortable and the wish to, to antidote them is a lot I find easier than when there's a grasping and attractiveness to something and the eight really concerns them now. It's a little bit more harder to counteract. Yeah. I, I was on the same line, but I think it's more detrimental to others. So that if you're praising yourself and deriding yourself, others as a teacher and I'm setting myself up and I'm having followers and they're following me and I'm the spiritual mentor, blah, 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 it has a big effect on disciples where this one doesn't seem to so directly affect other people i mean it, the, the person you're belittling yes 
but you're not attracting disciples because you are angrily. But on the other hand, if you see a teacher, you know, and they're uh, praising themselves, obviously, you know, big ego pride, isn't that going to be harmful for others? (laughs) People are, I mean, some people are going to want to stay away from that person. So, I don't know. I mean, just we can think about it maybe more thoughts might come up. But also I was thinking about uh, how does this interfere with wisdom? Because this is under the, um, related to the perfection of wisdom. And I, and I thought of this story they tell, this analogy they tell about um, having pride is like being on the peak of a mountain and having humility is like being in the valley below. So when you he- learn, hear teachings and so on, if you have a, a mind of pride or arrogance, the teachings just kind of roll right out you, come in one ear and out the other. They don't sink into you and help you develop qualities like wisdom. Whereas having humility is like being in the valley. The rain falls down into the valley, stays there, grows all these crops. So a mind of humility is much more fertile for the cultivation of good qualities and knowledge and wisdom and so on whereas a mind of pride is closed. So you won't gain much benefit from the teachings you receive and, and so on. So I was just thinking that, that maybe that's why it's in the wisdom section. <laughs> and the same with anger. I think anger also closes your mind. So a mind of humility is more open and soft and receptive to learning things from many different sources, even from children and from animals. You know, everyone has something I can learn from. So then your wisdom, your knowledge, your qualities can really grow. Okay, so is there any questions? I wonder too if here at number 32 could relate to uh, debate. You know, if you're insulting your opponent or you're trying to, you're focused on just winning instead of actually debating to gain the right view? Could be. I don't know. (laughs) Think about it. And if anyone comes up with something more, we can look at it next week. So, I think we can stop there if no one else has another question or comment.